Alex Simmons is Chris Ryan. Are you ready to tell the damn story? Oh my goodness, you you caught me. I was just I I told you never to call when I'm in the shower. Okay, let me just sit down here with the towel. Okay. Hey Chris, how you doing, man? Pretty good. Good to talk to you. You know what? We got an extra special episode today. How we're, special is it? Well, we're not just telling a damn story. We are leaning into the damn story with special guests. Jersey Drop. Jersey? How do I say your last name? Drozed. It rhymes with hosed. <laughs> okay, I just got hosed. We got special guest stars Jersey Drozd and Rob Stenziger. Yes? Yeah. From Lean Into Art, their podcast. So it's a podcast team up. That's Spider-Man right. Crossover. Jealous. Yeah, it's crossover. Yes. Hot dog. It, yes. It's like two in one, but it's four in one. Yes. It's four in one. Yes. Because <laughs> it'd be four of us, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to start the conversation here at. Uh, uh, tell the damn story and end the conversation in your podcast. Lean into art, isn't that correct? That is the plan. Yes. That's a so, beautiful thing. So how thing. about how about intros here? I mean, everybody who listens to our show knows Chris and and knows me. How about you guys say hello? And how lucky they are! How lucky they are! <laughs> we, we, we've been longtime listeners of the show. We love Tell the Damn Story, and it's it's a privilege to be here uh, in, in, in the same virtual room with you guys. So right, right back line. at you. We love your show, man. Absolutely. So uh, the intro we do for Lena Tart is a show where two visual storytellers get together and take a walk around topics that tend to occur to one when you go on this endeavor of communicating with images. And we think hard about it. So people, other people will, too. And my name is Jersey Drost. I'm a cartoonist and teaching artist. And I always say the other host is. Hey, I'm Rob Stenzinger. I do things like interactive storytelling and um, a bit of uh, teaching and coaching about these topics. And it looks like you do some planning, too. We yeah. can see Rob, and he's got just a few notes behind him. Uh, on a I'd huge say, whiteboard there, yes. Yeah, it's, what do you say, about 1,200 notes on that whiteboard? <laughs> oh, this is, an, this is an average whiteboard day for me. Um, so, so let, That's whiteboard, it, folks, not white bread. Okay, just, just right there. <laughs> Look, can we jump in with a little bit of uh, your technique there? Is that a brainstorming um, or an agenda or? Yeah, I mean, so it's a lot like a brainstorm, but it's sort of a, um, a, a cycle of beginning with getting ideas out. Then I try to progress to another uh, section or perspective on these ideas. And then I may see something new and try to, you know, sort of uh, see where I'm trying, the, the problem I'm really trying to solve. And then I give it a big title and then I dig deeper and make connections and find relationships. So, so it's a form of mind mapping too, isn't it, in a way? Totally. Yeah. yeah. I, yep. Oh, cool. Cool. Very cool. Do, that looks like a mind map of New York City. It's so detailed. God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, actually, I, I, with, the, with the little lines and things around it, I could, do, I could see an urban structure, but it also reminds me of a cosmic chart because I can't read anything. So it looks like there's something that streams on those transparent, you know, screenings there. Yes. But and then really un- nice. Rob, Rob is actually a Jack Kirby cosmic character. <laughs> ah, yes, <laughs> sure. He's a new instead of the sparkles, guy, right? it's all um, it's all um, dry erase ink that comes out. Of, <laughs> yeah. I, I thought I thought you were gonna fess up that it was really just you trying to figure out the best way to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. There's all those details. <laughs> do I you cut know, diagonal or a cross or what do I do? Whatever works. <laughs> yeah, you know, I. Um, you know, it's funny. We we decided when we decided we were going to do this 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 mashup here, uh, and we'll see how many you know adjectives we can come up with what we're doing as the shows go on. But um, we sort of slammed our heads together and came up with a few topics that we actually wanted to cover uh, in this thing. And I I definitely want us to have an opportunity to do that. And I know you guys, Chris and I are more. We have an idea what we want to do with each show and a topic and everything, but we almost are, we're a little improvisational. So we sort of like roll here and then we roll there. But you guys have a little bit more structured. So I just wanted to to, to take a look at this. This first one we wanted to talk about was, you know, as artists, you know, you know, Chris and I being writers pr- predominantly, and you guys being visual artists and interactive artists. Um, how, how did you establish your style, your your art style, your your voice? You know, and, and, and again, that works for writers, too. But I'm, I'm just curious with you guys, with Jersey and Rob, how did, how did you guys identify your individual art style and voice? 
Yeah, please. Uh, no easy ahead, questions here, right? Okay, it's, it's okay. not. Yeah, exactly. We're just. Um, yeah. Did yeah, Jersey so, just go? Not it. Is that what he just? Yeah. Did? He put you on the spot again, <laughs> Rob. Ooh, good times for a sandwich. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Oh, uh, Jersey. I don't know, man. Uh, no. Uh, so if I if I preface this by saying that my line of work is predominantly comics. Yeah, I'm a vi- I call myself a visual storyteller, but I'm, I'm a cartoonist. And so I make graphic novels and I make comic books. And so when I, when you, when I say like finding my voice, finding a visual style, uh, I would try to, um, frame that in saying that for me, what that means is the, the types of illustrations I do, like whether it's cartoony or realistic or like whether it's digital or whether it's analog. Um, and then also I think about like, like voice, I think of like, well, how do I compose a page? How do I lay out a page? What is like the compositional sort of approach that I have? And do I use composition of panels or the images within the panels? How do I work out the syncopation of image to word? in the panels, right? Like, am I going to have one moment that sort of suggests beginning, middle, and end and have like five word balloons? Or is it going to be a moment-to-moment kind of storytelling where each panel is roughly one moment in time with roughly one word balloon, right? So early in my development, it was, it was, I think it's this way for a lot of people because I teach comics classes too. And so I, I work with a lot of young people and I see that like, you know, just like for me, when you're in your teens and late or early 20s, it's a lot of mimicry. It's a lot of like, wow, Rick Leonardi does things where his characters just always look like they're moving. I'm just going to copy that as best I can, right? Mm. Um, Keith Giffen does this really weird thing where his panels feel so claustrophobic and I feel so confined by his storytelling. It makes me feel so sad and yet happy at the same time. I'm going to copy that as best I can, right? Um but, you know, like when, when it started to turn to like my stuff where somebody started saying like, well, that's a very Jersey Drozd kind of panel. Ooh, wow. Yeah, like I, that didn't happen for me until like, gosh, I was like 10, 15 years into doing this all the time. Right. And in, in somebody, it, was, in, it wasn't me who noticed it. It was a friend who actually pointed out to me. It was like, you really like having a lot of economy on your pages. You like getting the most out of each moment so that one moment can serve multiple moments. And that... I learned from Ernie Cologne. Uh, oh, wow. Ernie. Yeah. Ernie was like, and I say this in my classes all the time, like the man thought about comics in such a way that if there, if earth has ever been visited by alien life, it was him. I'm convinced of that. Like he doesn't yeah. think the way other humans think. Um, yeah, he was, he was such a brilliant, brilliant storyteller. And so one of the things I learned through just like absorbing his work over the years is that the man wasn't content to have one panel serve one moment. He had lots of pages where panel two would be panel four and five at the same time through the virtue of zigzagging back and forth through the page. And so I'm always looking for that in my work, for better or for worse, right? I I do know that that puts off some readers because uh, I have a book that's actually available now called uh, Boulder and Fleet, Mining for Trouble. It's 92 pages. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) it's it's relentlessly paced i mean it's very very fast and it's visually very dense but that's like what i was celebrating about what comics could do so that didn't happen like i said i didn't even notice it was happening until somebody sort of looked over my shoulder and pointed at it and then i said hey yeah you're right and then it got me thinking well why is that important to me and then i started backtracking looking through all my past influences and so it was something that was happening, I think, very organically, very um, subconsciously. And then when you get this interesting comment that makes you think twice, then you begin an investigation. I started being a little bit more reflective because I mean, now I'm in my 30s. I'm starting to think a little bit harder about, you know, why am I doing this stuff? Um, and so that 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 sent me, and and I got hooked on journaling. Rob and I could talk endlessly about journaling, and we do on the Lean Tart Cast. But uh, once I started getting into that and started asking myself, like, why am I, why do I do it this way and not that way? Then I started to notice what my quote unquote voice was. Um, and then if I were to close it off, like when I write my own stories, Dan Mishkin, actually a mutual friend of ours, uh, comic book writer, said uh, that I have a proclivity for writing stories where um, the villains. Uh, are redeemed in some way. We find out bad guys aren't quite as bad, or sometimes the people who uh, act the worst need our help the most. He said, that's a very Drozdy kind of story. And I was like, oh, okay, that's a nice yeah, thing to hear. Pretty cool. Oh. But again, that comes from somebody else looking in. It's because like when you're, I, there's a writer once said, it's like when you're, uh, like writing is like being in the ocean. Like when you're far away from it, it's like smooth and calm. And then when you get closer, you start to see the, the roiling waves. But when you're in it, you're just trying not to drown. <laughs> so that's great. 
Now, Rob, I'm going to push you on that. Um, why do your villains have to have some redeeming value? Why do you think your villains have to have some oh. redemption? Why do I think villains, my villains should have oh, some your redemption? villains in particular, yeah. Yeah. Well, think, well, didn't he just ask Rob that? I, no, I asked Jersey. I'm not sure what you heard. You said Rob, I thought. No, I did not. I swear to God, Let's I just not. play the tape back, okay? Play the tape back, please. We are recording this, so. Jersey. Listeners, I want you to write in. <laughs> okay, go ahead, Jersey. Uh, for for me, well, I write for young people. My the audience, and we'll talk about this probably in the crossover episode. Is like I I know that I want to write for ten or nine through twelve year olds. That's like the the audience right. that I most want to serve. And when I was that age, I remember a lot of media was feeding me a message of there's good guys, there's bad guys, there's the U S. and there's Russia, uh, there's GI Joe and there's Cobra, there is you know Shield and there's Hydra, and there's just bad guys who need a pummeling. That's what you got to do. And when, when I was uh, in fifth grade, I remember I got into my first fight and I, my, when my fist connected with that other kid's jaw and I felt my bone on his bone, it did something to me. And I didn't hurt him because I was a little tiny kid. I was not uh, like a, a bruiser by any means, but I, I thought this is what you do. This is how you prove dominance. You get fight, fights. That's all. Back to the future is all about like beat people up in order to win the girl. Indiana Jones, let's go find strange people in weird lands and punch them a lot. Um, and so I thought that's what or you do. Them. Yeah, whichever. You know. or, yeah. <laughs> but I used to think about that scene with the guy with the scimitar, which as a kid I thought was hysterically funny, right? I thought it was just so funny that he like, oh, he's so menacing and he just shoots him. And now I watch that as an adult. I'm like, yeesh, yeah, that makes you feel a little funny. Um, and so like when I was in fifth grade, I, I punched that kid and I just ran to the bathroom and just cried and cried and cried because I didn't like being able to do that to somebody. And I didn't have any guidance as to, well, why was it? Why did that bother me so much? Mm. Uh, and so when I, as I got older, I was like, you know what? I think what that kid needed to hear is that, you know what? Maybe dominance is out of forming coalitions and teams and friendships and allying yourself with people. And it's not about like smushing people down. So my fascination as a, as a storyteller is all about creating stories that celebrate high intensity action, but don't celebrate the um, punishing other people physically. Mm. Excellent. Excellent. Nice, nice answer. Appreciate it. Right. Oh yeah. And so I, what, what was fantastic here is I got to think a lot and I lit, I was deeply listening to Jersey's answer and, and thinking about like, why do I sweat so hard when someone, when I feel like I'm in a room of like, well, uh, skillful writers and storytellers, uh, um, you know, both written and visual. And I think this is one of the hats I wear. I will wear these hats and I'll to, to accomplish various goals and projects. But I feel like in that realm, my strongest strength that is not full isn't developed yet. I'm developing, right? And when I think about like my creative voice, where I am, uh, maybe too confident, is when I'm in a room of people who need who want to get something done, and uh, I am a sort of um, I want to encourage everyone to think and have a safe space to get their ideas out and, and then bridge them together for a shared purpose to move forward together, right? And I, I know I can do it. I've done it. I don't care what group of people I've been. I Just throw me in. I'm ready. And that's my creative voice, like, that, like what I'm strong at. So honestly, I feel like I'm full of voices. <laughs> because, and it just depends on like which one is on pitch or or, or can really, uh, do the right thing for that, for that job. Like, um, you know, I've, I've, um, I have things that I'm very deeply affected by and inspired from, mm -hmm. and that is totally part of my voice. Uh, so I love guitar and magic and music and martial arts and, you know, stuff like that. It shows all that stuff just shows up in my work. Um, when it's either intentional or unintentional. So there's, these elements of like, well, is my voice what I'm strongest at and what I've done the most of, or is my voice the things that just go through me? Mm. Uh, and it's, I, I, and then I'm sitting here thinking I, it's probably both. Right. Mm. Um, so that's my answer. <laughs> Gosh, Batman, when you put it that way, <laughs> no, but that, that makes perfect sense. Chris. Wow. 
uh, I think the, um, the voice is kind of uh, through osmosis, you know. Um, it's we, we, we talked last week about reading and the importance of reading and all that. And um, my whole life, that was a key element, you know. And I, that whole idea of uh, absorbing and then giving back, right? Marvel comics when I was really little, you know, more Marvel than DC, but some DC. And uh, as crazy as their plots got, the, uh, the person who represented the little guy would win. You know, it's it's hard to say that when you're talking about someone like Thor or Iron Man, you know, um, but I was more like a Captain America and Falcon and Hawkeye guy where they didn't they didn't have the powers of God, you know, and they were trying to do the right thing. And I learned a lot of the morality that way. And I learned pacing and cliffhanging, you know, get them to turn the page from those comics, um, but not so much the style. Uh, and maybe it started developing an ear for dialogue, but the rest of it came from when I kind of switched over to the prose. You know, early days, it was the, the reprinted pulps, but then it became S.C. Hinton, and it became uh, uh, Richard Price and Dennis Lehane and all these... Uh, I, I gravitated towards the street poets, you know, uh, even Elmore Leonard. All of their work uh, tended to be more grounded than uh, like a Ken Kesey or a Jack Kerouac. And while I appreciated what they were doing, I never wrote like Kerouac or, or Kesey. Uh, I always wrote more like, you know, you had cement under your feet. And over the years, I think that... Uh, that became part of the voice, you know? Um, and then when I, I studied some screenwriting and then I did sketch comedy writing and, uh, all of that combined to being able to get a rough and I was a weekly, weekly journalist that uh, I probably knocked out about 20 stories, 25 stories a week. So I got used to writing acceptable prose quickly and the difference between the weekly journalism and the fiction was that you could go back and rewrite you know and I began to embrace the idea of uh wasn't I think it was writer's boot camp was the uh, one of the courses I took and uh, their motto was the secret of writing is rewriting and I kind of embraced that you know and uh I think that combines to what comes across but uh one of the one of the knocks on my voice is that the people who know me, like friends from work or people I grew up with, it takes them about a hundred pages of one of my novels to stop hearing me and start hearing the characters. <laughs> so oh, you know, I'm I'm a work in progress. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think any of us escape or even in some ways should escape or forget where we come from. And, and who we are or who we were, because as Chris and I have talked about it on numerous occasions, and I bombard my, my students with, you know, that's, that's a part of where your voice comes from. It's the thing that separates or, or differentiates your version of a story of two lovers or two, two, two men fighting or, or, or exploring in space from the person next to you writing the same theme. Mm -hmm. It's it's how do we see the world? How did we experience emotions? What impacted on us? Which people inspired us? Or what characters, real or otherwise, are 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 in our heads and and somehow begin to filter out through some of the work we do? Uh, I mean, I grew up with a single parent, my mom, uh, who battled uh, physical illness for years, and you know still tried to be there for me 101 percent and do the PTA thing and. You know, we were we were definitely not of money at all, uh, public assistance, and yet I was surrounded by, uh, from the fourth grade up, I was surrounded by middle income or upper income uh, kids and their two parents and the kids having their own room in the apartment and all that. And I saw all of this 
And I'm thinking, I'm living like this, and they're living like that, and you know, there's envy and all that kind of stuff. And then the other part of me that was taking all that in, the other part was also watching cartoons and TV shows, and my heroes were the the guys who could who could, you know, stand up to the bad guys and and defeat them either because the bad guys came at them or because we were standing up to protect others. So, you know, it was always the Lone Ranger and Tonto were my boys, you know, because that's what they did. They basically just went around all of the West constantly defending other people. Uh, and I couldn't do that because I was not the street kid with the, you know, the great right hook or whatever. I was a pudgy fat kid that made people laugh and didn't have a girlfriend. That was that was my life. So as far as I was concerned, I needed I needed some heroes in there who are making it all work out in the end. And, and, and then the other end of that, too, was, um, you know, again, flashing back to, to, to comics and heroes and TV series like that, I also watched a lot of foreign films as a kid. I didn't know why, just somehow they fascinated me. British accents and other accents fascinated me. And so I was always wondering, what was beyond what I knew? The, another neighborhood, another city, another country. And that filtered in there. And by the time I was graduating high school, I knew I wanted to travel. Um, I knew that, uh, you know, I wasn't I couldn't be race conscious in terms of judging other people by where they came from. I couldn't do that. I was too curious about where you came from. I was too curious about what was different and also still curious about what I was about and what my people were about. And all these things were just filtering through so that by the time I started pursuing acting and writing, my voice usually seemed to me to be, and I didn't, I wasn't conscious about it, conscious about it then, but what it seemed to be about was fair. What's fair? You know, mm -hmm. if, if I was doing stories for kids, which I, you know, I also do uh, both prose and comics, if I was doing stories for kids, it had to be teaching them about fairness, either the child themselves trying to be fair, or if someone was being unfair to them about somehow correcting that and dealing with that. Uh, my adult, more adult stories, the same thing. You know, we, you know, life screws you over sometimes. Is there a way of, of maintaining your integrity and, and, and yet facing and dealing with that and sometimes losing? So I didn't realize it for a long, long time that that was my, that was a part of my voice mm -hmm. was dealing with that. And then finally the, with, with the series Blackjack um, and, and a couple of other things I did, I also realized that history was a part of my voice. It was, all the things that I enjoyed as a kid, watching all the old serials on TV and, and all these different countries that our heroes went to and, you know, the, the, the great safari stories. We always represented the indigenous people as buffoons or villains or whatever. And 99 percent of the time with the films and the TV shows, it was not played by anybody who was actually black or, or Japanese or Chinese or any of those things. So for me, rewriting, not rewriting, writing the wrong right way uh, seemed to be a piece of it too. So Blackjack allowed me to go back into the past, into the 30s and 40s, which I enjoyed the mystery and the travel and the intrigue, but please let me try and represent these people correctly and make them, even the villains, human beings, mm -hmm. so that my stories were more fair, which goes back to that. So that's, that's me in a nutshell. Well, I, I've got two questions for the two of you, if you guys don't mind. Run, Chris, so, run. I'll hold them back. <laughs> so what I'm, I'm, what ready. I'm ready for I'm your questions. Here. Just call okay. me Rob. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the, that's the uh, tell the damn story safe word, right? That's what that's I thought. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, Rob. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, look, what I'm hearing is like, there's like a recurring theme in all of our stories that like, it's like looking for some kind of deficit in our experience and correcting it, like saying like, this is the way the world could be. And like, I'm through my work, I'm going to say how the world could be a little, like, there's some of that in all of our stories. But so, which leads me to, to one question for Chris is why the non-powered characters, like what were the, were they speaking to in like speaking to in terms of like your experience as a young person, like Hawkeye, Batman sure. and stuff. Cause you have, we saw in your studio, there's a whole bunch of Hawkeyes. Bunch of uh, Hawkeyes. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, I'll give you, a, I'll give you two answers for that. Um, my, uh, my education was through, 
you know, Captain America and the Falcon and all that. But uh, as he hinted in the uh, outsiders, but also my father, who was uh, he was a cop down the South Bronx. And he was also born and raised in Baltimore catechism. You know, he's a Bronx guy, but he could recite that chapter in verse. So that was the foundation of my logic. Now, the foundation of my reality was I weighed about 70 pounds in a 120-pound world. And the <laughs> and every spring, the planet tried to kill me, you know? So, plus I was in the Bronx, and I love the Bronx and, uh, you know, the people growing up. But the, the go-to, the default setting in a Bronx conversation is your mom, you know? It's, it's the put-down. It's the belittling. So... There were, uh, and I, I kind of had a bit of a violent uh, household, so there's kind of a little bit of a PTSD from growing up that I've been trying to cure and recover, I think, from letting uh, the little guy get some justice, you know, and or the human, the human being, the uh, against the power structure, you know. Um, my neighborhood, I grew up in Parkchester, and... Over four of the years that I grew up there, um, I forget his name now. It'll come to me on Tuesday. Um, <laughs> Hemsley. Hemsley. Um, uh, he was one of the rich guys in Manhattan, and they bought out the whole neighborhood from Metropolitan Life. Um, and then he proceeded to give the, the neighborhood was broken into four quadrants, north south, east, and west, and he proceeded to give one quadrant per anniversary to his wife. So my entire world was a side gift for his wife, Leona Hemsley, who has her own pronounced reputation in the annals of New York City real estate uh, as being hell on wheels. Um, that irked me, you know, that, that someone could buy and sell your world, you know, as 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 they could a dozen roses, so that kind of, all of that all of that stuck with me, and I think that a lot of people, uh, right up to right this moment, you know, in America, uh, a lot of people are doing an honest living and they're trying to be nice to everyone, and they still feel the burn of uh, how cold the world can be, mm. you know. So that is that is where I get a lot of. Uh, the fuel for the stories and that's why they come from that angle and what i think is interesting about that angle this this is like oh gosh you guys are so good together because like this is a perfect segue into the question i had for alex which is in alex i've read your comics and i see the issues yeah well you know <laughs> you gotta do. i took my medicine yeah. uh, <laughs> I was going to read no, your but, comics, and really, we need to talk. Self-deprecation <laughs> <laughs> there, folks. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. But, but when I'm reading it, I see the issues you're addressing, and I notice that there's nothing shrill in the way you address the topic of fairness. There's nothing uh, – there's there's a immediacy, but not an urgency. It's like this needs to, this is a problem. Here's how my characters will address this problem. But I never feel like you're screaming at me as an author. And so I wonder if you guys could, like, Alex, you could start, maybe Chris, you could finish this idea of, like, how do you take, like, so if, if finding your voice is identifying the deficits in your experience or the pain in your upbringing, how do you channel it in a way so that you're not, and this is, this is a big, I'm asking for a very selfish reason, because as a writer, I struggle with this. How do you not cry in public? And how do you, how do you know the difference between crying in public and making art? Wow. Uh, I want to start because I want to throw a blackjack uh, compliment to Alex. But first, okay. <laughs> I think, uh, first I'll talk about my own stuff, then I'm going to segue to uh, Blackjack. I think I do uh, cry in public with the writing. Um, when, uh, when the heroes are handed a defeat, when uh, there's a loss of a character, where the, the, the powers that be win, you know, or even when it's bittersweet, you know. Um, my last novel, or not the last one, the latest one, was A Simple Rebellion. It's over there. And um, it's, it starts out with the entire country under duress, you know? I don't know, not sure where I got that from. Huh? Um, but, <laughs> but 
he, uh, uh, the hero is an accidental hero uh, forced into it by circumstances. But his entire backstory is that he's a widow and that he's in mourning and doesn't want to do anything with the world. And, and as he's coming out of it, we also see flashbacks. And I think all of that is extremely sad and uh, crying in public, as you say. And then it, it gathers on. Now, if I'm allowed to switch gears to blackjack. Like, who's going to stop you? <laughs> one, of, one of the things that I think is the coolest attribute, uh, attribute of Alex's writing of that character is that Blackjack's father does get shrill. Mad Dog, look at the name. He loses it. He goes and Blackjack is the next generation where you can see him simmering. And he is, you know, absolute savage when it comes to protecting those who need protecting. But when he's talking about it, it's he doesn't lose. His father would yell. Yeah. Blackjack doesn't. I'll give you a quick example. Uh, he's on a plane one time. This is from one of the early comics. And the, the rest of the plane is white. And they, why is he here? Was that? And then... The pilots get uh, taken out, we'll just say, one way or the other. And the only one knows who to, how to fly is Blackjack. And as he goes up, one of the white guys, says, he can't do it. And Blackjack, although he's insulted, you can tell the insult. He just he can get out anytime he wants. Right. While the plane is. Right? And, and it was it's just such a great example. I'd love Alex to talk about why Matt, Mad Dog can cry or scream or get furious and blackjack tape takes a more balanced approach on his way into answering that. I have that no cool? idea. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, blackjack came to me. I mean, we're talking, we're having this discussion. 400 years ago. Yeah. 2019. When he was, when he was in his twenties, 400 and, years ago. Yeah. And, and it, the character came to me in the eighties and I started working on him in the eighties He's always, he's, it's always felt like he's talking through me, like it's someone that I've known or that I know or that, I'm, that I knew a lot about, but now I'm getting to know more about him the more time I spend with him. And the father has always been black men that I've known. Uh, and, and none of them, my father, because my father wasn't in my life. But there's a persona of black men from the 60s going forward during the civil rights movement, that there's angry black men, right? right? You know, if you weren't, you know, if you weren't one of these brothers, hang on, what I'm saying, you know, if you weren't one of those, you were the, the angry black men, either militant or, you know, a threat or whatever, there was that. Prior to that, there was the humble black man. And the only time the humble black man could exude some power was among his own or among his family. Certainly the rest of the world didn't want to know you, didn't want to hear from you. If you did talk up too much, there was a problem. So those voices have been in my head since I was a child. And as I was looking to create Aaron, much like I did with a character for DC, uh, Orpheus, I wanted a family. I wanted a family dynamic with some, ans with some history to it that could say we are people. And with more than one level, more than one voice, more than one attitude. The... Aaron's father grew up very much from the working in the fields kind of thing, the, 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 the labor thing, the hard labor, the rough life, people messing with him, that when he finally got out and fought in a war and felt that power that he could do this, he didn't want to come back and he didn't want to deal with becoming a humble man again. And so his, there is a certain amount of anger and resentment that he has that's developed in him since childhood. And here he is at a man in his 30s or 40s in a, in a position in a, in a world where he can punch somebody, where he can, he can take out that anger. He can let it loose and devastate if he wishes. Aaron has been exposed to that, but he's, there's also his mother in his life who's uh, religious and, and also dealt with humble and didn't have the opportunity to smack people. And so she found her power in faith. 
and in particular her religion. And then there's the love and the nurturing that she gave her children. And plus she was the only one in the family, you know, in terms of the adults who read. So she got them into reading. And then once they started traveling in her own way, with dignity, she tried to introduce her children to the rest of the world as they were in these different places. So again, how you present yourself, how you carry yourself, these are all things that Aaron was exposed to. It's not just punch your way through life, but how do you meet people? How do you learn? How do you absorb? And so he learned to be a little bit more contained and more aware. And I think that, that understanding of my characters gave me the voices for them and gave me the dynamics between them. And when I approach a theme in a story, I have to approach it through their filter. How do they see this situation? How would they deal with this situation? And then of course my own emotions or my own feelings or belief, you know, season the, the stew, if you will. Long answer, but that's pretty much how I, I think about much of the things that I do, is who can are I, these characters? Can I add one thing to the answer? I don't know. Um, I'm listening to you talk about uh, father and son. And I think the other thing I can offer as to where all this comes from is that my father worked in the South Bronx. He worked in Fort Apache. He was a cop there uh, for my entire you know, youth. And every day he took a bus and a train to a lost cause. I mean, when I was a teenager, that neighborhood was literally burning down. And, uh, and Fort Apache, I mean, the 41st precinct went from being called Fort Apache to being called Little House on the Prairie because every other building was literally destroyed and torn down. And he went every day, never complained, never heard, he never heard a single cop story from my father. He would come home and say, uh, do you know uh, so-and-so from your school? And I'd say, yeah, why? Uh, no reason. And then the next day, that kid would come up and say, you know, your father, da da da. He got arrested or, or he got a summons or something. And, you know, uh, um, it was what it was. Um, and remember the, uh, the, the, black, uh, the blackout in New York City? Oh, yeah. Which one? So, the uh, 1977, 78, that one. Oh, that one, yeah, because right. I, so, I remember both of them. Right. So, very I, different experiences. Yeah, yes, very different experiences. So in uh, 77, 78, I forget which year, um, my father was off that back and he, he talked to my oldest brother who had just picked up a van, hadn't even gotten a chance to repaint it. And I'll tell you that why that's important in a second. But he said, you know, I need you to drive me down to work. And he, and he got into a van with my brother and on the back of the van was written, we've come for your daughters. So <laughs> yeah, I swear to God. <laughs> <laughs> So he drove down fortunate on that night to have that phrase. But he got he drove down to work and he was I think he did twelve or eighteen hours or some nonsense. Um because you know that was how dedicated he was. That you went out and you did your job and you helped other people and I think that rubbed off. That's why uh Falcon or or Hawkeye, who are outclassed every time they're with other superheroes but still do it from heart and still do it from com community and uh, uh, commitment. That's why that resonates with me, you know? Um, so for what it's worth. I, you know, I think, and, and Jersey and, and Rob, I'd, I'd love to hear how you feel about it. I think- Yeah, that, your turn. Yeah, <laughs> and, and we've, we've got a few minutes left here. Um, you know, I grew up, I mean, I think I'm the oldest one here. He said somewhat- By ugly. far. Somewhat proud. <laughs> um, I grew up on things like, you know, originally Mighty Mouse, Heckle and Jekyll, Popeye. Cave paintings. <laughs> there you go. We'll pick you up later. Um, and then eventually, you know, Superman and some of the other cartoons and things that, that hit the television. And, and I won't even mention the Tarzan movies. Uh, but, you know, I grew up on these things and they they did have their lessons or their their morals. Either they were telling you something funny and just entertaining you or they were trying to teach you something about being a good citizen, a good person. Certainly all of my live action heroes were about that. You know, the, again, Lone Ranger and Tano, Range Rider, a lot of cowboys, uh, you know, Hopalong Cassidy, um, uh, uh, Peter Gunn. Any of these characters were about righting wrongs. And I somewhere in the 80s, and stop me if I'm wrong, somewhere in the 80s, we, we sort of began to embrace anti-heroes more. 
And mm-hmm. so it's like, okay, he's going to do the right thing for the wrong reasons, but it'll work out for all of us. Or the <laughs> wrong so, thing for the right reasons. Yeah, yeah. Th- that too, right. You know, and, and, and the, and the first time I saw that was, oddly enough, not with somebody we consider an anti-hero, but with James Bond. Uh, when when he, after g- extracting the information he needed from this guy who was really no longer a physical threat to him, he just blithely shot him. And I went, holy smokes, you know, that's our hero. Because never seen anything like that. What do you guys, how do you feel, is there any difference between the characters that maybe influenced you in, in your growing up era and what you see now? And, and do you think it matters? Well, I mean, I, is there a difference? I think new, uh, I don't know how, yeah, the anti-heroes uh, came out and they were attractive and interesting because I was a teenager right at those, that time, right? And I thought, you know, yeah, one way to to take power is to just get extra physical and angry and extreme, right? And like, uh, let's see, so it was what was it, Batman, um, Arkham Asylum, mm. which which to me I, I thought, oh, this is this is the uh, somehow it spoke to me as a piece of fine art and yeah, yeah, as as comics, and somehow it was it was next level because you know Batman was punching and kicking and with a little more, I don't know, uh, grittiness or something. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And, and I thought, well, and I also fell in love with Ghost Rider at that time, right? Danny Ketch, Ghost Rider. I was, you know, walking through a a newsstand and they had the rack of comics and there was a skull in a uh, hovering above a leather jacket with its head on fire. And I was like, that is speaking yes. to me. Yeah, yeah. That's what I want to be when I grow up. It's <laughs> coming home. Right, exactly. I have the leather jacket. <laughs> yeah, I can but, just set my face on fire. <laughs> yeah, and metaphorically maybe, right? But yeah, he's letting something out that I can't let out. I need right. to see what's up here. And so, yeah. I, I, uh, and, right, so I got into that, and it's, it's a different kind of... Uh, it, it's a different way of exploring the similar similar emotions that that you that that uh, that uh, Chris and Alex both of you were describing, mm-hmm. but it's got a um, it, it's it's in a it's a it's in a little bit of a different shell and a little bit of a different wrapper where they're still the same stories. They may not speak to someone else in a different context at that same time, but um, honestly, the you know, whether it's, you know, Ghost Rider with his head on fire or Pikachu riding um, uh, the, let's see, what I forget what, what Pikachu was riding after, like, but he when he went after the, the I forget what episode it was in season one of Pokemon, but like, I didn't see that till I was in my 40s, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, just same thing, big feelings, but different, rap, different rapper. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. And... I don't yeah, know. yeah. The, the it's the episode when that that jerk kid leaves Charmander in the rain to die because he's like he's not a good fighter. And oh. then when like Ash takes that kid to task and starts screaming, I'm like, you get him, you get him, you punish that kid, you know. <laughs> Same thing, yes. But Ghost Rider like was appropriate when I was 16. Now that I'm in my 40s, I want to watch a really cute little boy chew out another cute little boy about not treating their pets right. Um, um, if I. It, yeah. yeah, sir. But but I was yeah, just the anti- crossover between Black the... Lightning and Pikachu Darkness. would be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'm I think what Rob, you're Rob talking about is I think you're talking about the different tones that we paint with, right? You know, I... Ghost Rider, uh, Pikachu, Hawkeye—they're they're all on a similar journey, but it's it's how they express it and and what what tones you're allowed to play with, you know. Uh, Ghost Rider got to go uh, to a darker place without becoming uh, the darkness. The the darkness, yes. You would think he would uh, succumb to that, but the the saving grace, besides the the amazing look of that character, is that you know he resisted that. The, he never gave up. You know, uh, I think some of the anti-heroes they started to give up on that that moral core. And it became, mm. you know, body count, body count comics, you know. I hope that's not a company name. Um, Will be now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but, what, Rob, what were you going to say? Because you, you hadn't finished your thought. No, I, um, so I, no, 
I think at times when, when, or when that first came out, it, I, I still think some of those characters had sort of, uh, um, and I, I theorize that this, that if we, maybe there is a different remaining core, important moral heart of gold, something being solved, uh, an experience being lived in some different theme that's appealing to that specific audience that may not be appealing to me, right? So like Ghost Rider, what, whatever he became after that that series, I never really kept in touch. And But other characters that would try to answer that grittiness, I, I would... I would guess, but I haven't done the homework, that that they probably have a new way of expressing the grittiness that may be pushing some other boundaries. Because how can you express grittiness if you aren't doing something that's making someone uncomfortable? You can't be comfortable with grittiness, right? Because right. it doesn't taste gritty yeah. anymore. Can I address that, though? <laughs> go, oh, sure. Go ahead. I, I, I agree with you. Um, and I think then the challenge becomes who's handling the material, you know? Um, like who hands it the, lands in? Well, yeah. No, like, no, no. Who 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 produces hand, it? Yeah, who's producing it? Like, let's take the Punisher for a minute. Um, when Chuck Dixon was doing it, you still saw. I mean, it was hard. It was heavy body count, dark, but there was still a moral core. And mm. then for a while, God bless it. I don't want to name names of anything that I'm not really being positive about but there became a time when it just was the body count not so much the moral core and one of the great reliefs uh relief reliefs for me uh with the netflix series was that as gritty and as body count oriented and as violent as that particular show got they got the moral core right they got that um that need to right the wrong that that he was suffering. Um, Does it always justify the violence? That's a whole different conversation. But the idea that that, uh, there's either you're seeking redemption or that you are holding on to redemption um, means, it means something. There's, there's, uh, without it, I think you lose the story, you know? and I think when can't when the uh, like the Ghost Rider when he's handled really well, there it it flourishes. When Nicolas Cage does him, maybe not so much. You know, I don't know. You might have a different opinion, but okay. I've never seen this. I'm pretty sure it doesn't exist. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? What? That was a Nicolas right. Cage movie? Of course, there wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's where I theorize though too, well, Chris. And, and Alex in Jersey, the, that maybe it's just that, um, okay, maybe a story runs its course and it doesn't have a great message anymore, but it's still money making. And then um, the message yeah. can get can come back. But anytime the message is present, it's being you know put in some kind of shell of theme and and um, aesthetics that appeals to where it's going to be the most marketable now. Right. Especially yeah, I, if it's a property. I believe in allowing things to end, you know, a, a good story arc. And, and then if another artist picks it up and goes in a different way, well, then, you know, that's that person's, you know, uh, a statement. Uh, but I think you also have to respect what gave a particular character life for decades and de- decades, you know. Um, well, I, I think that when when a story becomes or a character becomes a gimmick, then then I have problems, you know, and whether anybody cares, I have problems or not. Uh, I think and when violence becomes a gimmick because we haven't got anything else to say at this moment, I have a problem with that. Um, you know, it's the same thing we did with sex and some other things. When it, when that's all it's about, okay, well, yeah, it's going to find its audience. That's fine. But how long are you going to per- perpetuate that before it becomes, you know, basically? not worth the time. I, I respect shows and, and series that end because they've told the story they wanted to tell. They've told it to the best of their ability and they realize now we're regurgitating and it's not worth it. So let's end on an up note. Uh, and I think that's, that's kind of the way to go. But then again, I also look at my age, you know, and I look at what, what impressed me when I was at a certain age uh, or certain stories that I've in, that I've seen repeatedly, like a, a quick example, um, The Apartment is a movie that I've watched 
off and on for years. Yeah. Mm. And I found that when I first started watching this movie, and I won't go into the storyline all that, but when I first started watching this movie, I identified with the nebbish young, you know, guy who was trying to get his life together and it was it wasn't working out and he was he had a, a crush on this girl and she she was involved with somebody else. And I, I was just sitting there going, Oh man, that's that's terrible. He's living alone and everything. And I, I can identify with that, right? And the dude that she's interested in, he's a dork and I don't care about him. And then years later I'm looking at the situation differently. Not that I think the dork is wonderful, but I'm going, oh God, now I'm the same age as this guy. You know, I understand how the business works. Jesus sucks, you know. And, and so, so every now and then when I watch this thing, I'm, I'm seeing more stuff. And I'm identifying yeah. with other aspects of it. And it's, 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 so, it's, it's, yeah, anyway, that's what I'm just saying. I think we, we, our life experience changes how we see things. And there's some things we try and hold on to and some things we just have to acknowledge. Okay, new, new deal. So, but this, this goes back to, or rather, this is reminding me of some perhaps poorly worded things that I said earlier that were like maybe were incompletely worded. When I was saying the difference between crying in public and, and making art is that art, I feel like the difference is for me is that if I'm making art, it's something that's going to speak to a variety of experiences and you're going to be able to look at it differently down the road because it's oh, talking something more universal versus me saying, you know what? My life sucks and I'm going to tell you about it. Right. right Which right, that, right. that sort of expression has, has value too. Right. Um, but, but, but for me, it's like my proclivity or my, my leaning is always going to be towards, I want to make art because I want to make something that somebody's gonna be able to read. Like when I watched, Zorro as a child versus when I watch Zorro now, right? I was like, yeah, Bernardo, he's funny. He's kind of silly, but he's not as cool as Zorro. Now, as a, as a 40, 44-year-old, I'm watching, I'm like, oh, yeah, Bernardo, you are so brave and so awesome and it's so adorable how you can be so cute and harmless seeming, but actually you're the most dangerous character of the show because you hear and see everything and nobody suspects you, you know? Yeah. Things like that. Um, so I think... So going back to like this, this topic of greediness, I have like a, a different approach to it in one respect is that I'm involved in this project called the Captain Seriously comic series. I don't know if I've told you guys about this. No, you haven't. Um, sure. So I was hired I was hired by the city of Chelsea, Chelsea, Michigan, to create a comic series where the uh, for just for the specific school district. And I meet with the school <laughs> administration. Cool. And we talk with the, the different administrators about each year. So, okay, second grade, what are we dealing with? Well, hand washing is a big issue. Can you do an exciting superhero story where they happen to learn that hand washing is important? Sure, there's a germ villain, you know, and here we go. One of the bad, good guys gets sick, throws a tantrum. He's so powerful, he becomes dangerous. And if he had just washed his hands, the base wouldn't be in shambles now, that kind of thing. <laughs> but I've been doing this every year for many years now. I'm, I'm working on the 10th grade book right now. And so the book has to age up with the kids. So when we got to eighth grade, I had a, a conversation with administration where I had to ask, okay, this is going to feel false to these kids. Now they're 13, they're 14. And the morality and the packaged morality that adults give children up to that point starts to sound bromidic and insincere and confining. And then I, and my, my, uh, that I picked to the group was that this is why stories like Insurgent and Hunger Games are so popular with that age group because what happens when you're 13? Suddenly you find out, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to inherit this world that all these grown-ups bungled and made a wreck of the place, right? And now I've got this wasteland. It was this really cute, happy place where I was protected and, and all I really had to worry about was my friendships. But now I have to worry about, is the world even going to be here tomorrow? And I'm in junior high now. If I reveal any of my emotions, all the other kids are going to call me out and humiliate me, which is like social suicide, right? Like right. It literally it feels like dying to expose yourself as, as a 14-year-old kid in class, right? Expose yourself emotionally, I mean. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so like I made the pitch. I'm like, I think we got to change the story from a, a bright, sunny superhero story to a post-apocalyptic. I'm like, I need to destroy the city, and I think we need to kill a character. And I think the character has to die because of, the, of a mistake of one of the other heroes. Because once you're 14, 15, suddenly everything begins to matter. You got to start preparing for college. You got to start thinking about elections. You got to start thinking about all this, right? Yeah. And I think my hypothesis is, is that part of what makes gritty stories work it's like I've been teaching for 10 years, and every year I get a little 12-year-old kid who looks at me with this flash of genius, and they, 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 they wind up the pitch, like, get ready, Jersey, I got something for you. I'm like, all right, what do you got? I'm going to do Batman, but he kills people, right? And then, like, he smiles triumphantly, like, wow. I and I go, yep, that hasn't been done, and, and I want to say there's a reason it hasn't been done, but uh, but but go go for it let's see what you got right because that you got to explore that right now mm -hmm. because 
everything feels so on the surface because it's all the first time. And I think that's what where grit really thrives is in that age. I think that's why it thrives yeah. in that age bracket, right? Well, I would also think that, um, you know, the stuff that we were handed and embraced, and I embraced, you know, Captain America's uh, ethos and Falcons and Hawkeyes and all that stuff, um, it doesn't work as well. You know, now you see something like the boys where, you know, the heroes are really anti-heroes who are going up against the public heroes because they're corrupt, because, of course, they would be if they had that much power. Right. And yeah. I I know a whole, I'm, I'm a teacher as well. And I, I know a whole bunch who say that makes perfect sense to them. And it gets me it punches me right in the gut because it goes it flies against you know, the morality that, um, my comfort zone. Right. But sure. look around, you know, they, they, I was having a conversation with my journalism class this week and it got down to two, uh, a question about two words. And I said, does morality, uh, reality, does reality matter? Reality matters. Right. Mm-hmm. I had a whole class that wasn't sure it did. Yeah. I, that threw me. They're like, you make your own reality. And of course, if they, if they look at the world, yeah, this is. And see, that's, that's the problem that I have. And and actually I want to do something because I know that we, we're packaging this as two separate shows. So, you know, we're, we're a little bit past the hour mark, but either way, I just want to say this, the, the problem that I have with, with exactly the reality matters thing, the problem that I have is when I was growing up, and even I think when probably you guys were, okay, they wanted you to believe that right was right and wrong was wrong, and and here's how we deal with it, and it's going to be a neat thing that is taken care of in five minutes, 22 minutes, or 55 minutes, you know, depending on what you're watching. If it's a movie, okay, an hour and a half, roughly. But it can be fixed in that short period of time. And then, of course, reality comes and goes, no, that's not how it works. And yes, things are corrupt and all that. The problem is that I think that when they were trying to teach us those things, right or wrong, they always added the element of hope that at least one person can make a difference. At least if we band together, we can fix something. We're not gonna fix the whole thing, but keep trying, keep working towards a better something, a better day, a better tomorrow, a better whatever. I feel that a lot of the flood of material that comes at us now offers no hope. And it basically sort of leaves you with, it's all screwed, deal with it. And I watch, I watch not only young people, but old people, and not all, obviously, sort of accept that, yeah, I can't do squat, so why bother? And I think that's detrimental. Yeah. It's detrimental to us as a society. And the only hope I have, other than the fact that, I'm sorry, I, I, I've got a lot of hope in me, and damn it, that's where it's staying. But the other end of it is I get to teach with uh, work with a lot of young people from different countries through one of the teaching assignments that I have. And a lot of them are fighting for the future. You know, some of them have bought into it. You know, it's going to be gone by tomorrow or maybe next week. So, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I often say, what if it isn't? Then where are you? Where are we? And so that's that's the thing that I think with antiheroes or whatever, whatever, Whatever funnel you're going to feed us these messages through, the moment you tell the story that it's all over, too bad, you slam the door shut on so many people's future and the chance to make a difference that that's dangerous. And I, I don't think we can be flippant about that. I, uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I don't think the kids that I'm talking to are being flippant, but they no, are No, but I, I don't think they are. And, yeah, but... Uh, their position is really forcing me to rethink, and I want to hear what these two have to say about this. In uh, with an uh, uh, an emerging audience that takes for um, fact, nothing matters. Everybody's corrupt. It, you know the world isn't. You know is is screwed. How do you tell the damn story? And on and that what story, note, what, do, what story do you tell? On Tune in that tomorrow. Note, we will say, <laughs> be with us next week for the next thrilling episode. <laughs> or lean into the damn story or tell the art. 
Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, two. Part yeah, two. You, you, you talk about leaning into the art. I think we might need that now more than ever, but how do you do it? I can't wait to hear the answer. Okay. Stay tuned, y'all. <laughs>